This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Heidi, how have you been? I'm doing well. Thank you for asking. I am back to health after being sick last time we got together. That is very nice uh, to be healthy again. Forget how much you take your health for granted until you're not feeling well. And, you know, it's a busy time of year for families. We have some birthdays going on in our family around this time of year. The preparation for Halloween is underway. So I purchased my candy, the much discussion about costumes being made. And also my daughter is in volleyball and, and talk about, I hope I don't jinx it here, but she's, her team is in the playoffs tonight. So I'm getting ready to head out for that tonight. So a lot of good things going on. A lot of good fall things. How about you, Father Dan? What are you up to? I'm doing well. We're at the past midway mark of the semester, at least here at St. Mary's. I wonder, David, if Loyola, if you're in the same boat. So last week we had our fall break, as it were. And it was nice on the one hand, because the first half of the semester has just been a whirlwind and very busy, lots of good things. So I'm not complaining, but the burden of many good things is still a burden of time. And so there were some personal things to attend to celebrating the funeral of the a family member of a friend, dear friend. So, so that was obviously somber and um, at the same time joyous to remember somebody's life and to be with people in those times. But then a lot of the week, I, as academics tend to do, there is no rest for the weary or the wicked. And uh, I have a book that I'm working on that is supposed to be finished by the end of this calendar year. And if my publisher and editors are listening to this, it will be finished by the end of this calendar year. 
but I was spending a fair amount of time catching up on on some of that work. And actually, it was really exciting to do that. I know David gives us updates on his projects. I'm sure we'll hear some in just a moment. I haven't talked much about book projects on this podcast for the last couple of seasons. Part of that has been because of my transition to this new position a year and a half ago here at St. Mary's College, which is wonderful. In addition to the normal teaching and faculty responsibilities, I've had these new administrative responsibilities as well as the director of the Center for Spirituality. And that has been, again, like the busyness of travel and other things this semester. It's been wonderfully hectic, you know, very, very busy. So all good things. But yeah, it's nice to get back as well into some of these longer term book projects. And I know my publishers are happy to hear that. David, speaking of books and publishing and all sorts of exciting things, what's new with you? Well, I'm working on a December 15th deadline for the final revisions of my book for Yale. I'm very excited about that. I have been through now what we call the peer review process, where anonymous readers have commented on the book and suggested how it might be made stronger. And I know some people hate that process. I found it really valuable and really learned a lot about my own project by having other people read it. So I'm grateful and I'm very thankful to my editors for giving me time to make the project better and to go back and fix some of the things that the peer reviewers commented on. So I'm very excited about it. It's just a matter, as you well know, Dan, and I'm sure you also working under deadlines, Heidi, understand just finding time to fix the thing and finish the thing is a task in and of itself with teaching and other responsibilities. The other piece that has happened to me lately is for the first time in almost two and a half years, I traveled. I went to New York City and had a chance to visit with a former student, which was wonderful, and a friend of mine from college had lunch with him as well, and then caught up with a bunch of my colleagues and friends from Commonweal Magazine and went to their long-postponed and finally held a Commonweal Conversations event, which is a once-every-two-years event where they honor some Catholic thinkers and and do some fundraising. And so it was a lovely night. I had a, a good time there. I was masked and distanced and safe because I just continued to be that way. The travel went off without a hitch, and it was really enjoyable to actually do something that felt a little normal again. I know that you both have been sticking your toe back into the waters of travel as well, so this was my first time, and it couldn't have gone better. I had a really thoroughly good time there. Was the plane packed? Because every plane I've been on has been packed. Yeah, it was 100% full both flights, yes. Yeah, and, yeah, and masked. I, People don't mask on planes so much anymore. No, I was one of the few. I was one of the few. But I, my wife, Kira, got me one of those sort of extra heavy-duty masks, and it apparently worked. I'm eight days out from the trip and no symptoms or anything like that. So knock on wood, but I, I feel like it went well and was as safe as it could have been. That's great to hear. I also hear, and we were talking a bit offline, that that Commonweal dinner was sort of the who's who event seems like everybody I know, all of my friends and colleagues, including yourself, were there. In fact, I had a, a former student who popped into my office, coincidentally just happened to be on campus earlier this week and mentioned that he had been there as well. So, I mean, I thought, it was, I, yeah, I feel a little FOMO from the Catholic publishing world for not having been there. So I don't know what that says about me, but uh, I'm not cool enough. But it does sound like it was a wonderful event and uh, some great celebrating going on. So cheers to our, our friends at Commonweal. Well, I want to assure you, I lower the coolness of any room that I enter by several <laughs> degrees. And so it would be much cooler if you were there. And I do plan to go back to future of these. So I hope to run into you. And we ran into our friend and colleague, Steve Millies from the Bernadine Center at Catholic Theological Union there as well. So he sends his greetings to the listeners of the show. 
Yeah, I ran into Steve at an event at Loyola maybe a week or two ago as well. It is good to be back out among people, running into people, getting even getting on planes and travel, exhausting as it is. It's really great to have some normalcy back and to be seeing people in person. Yeah, the thing I, I fear, speaking of the planes and the traveling, I echo both of your remarks. I think it's great to like having the student pop in just into my office during office hours. And it's just wonderful to see people again. But on the plane thing, to, to your point, David, yeah, the, not a lot of folks are masking. And what I found myself with the increased traveling, thinking more and more about is actually not as much COVID-19 as all the other flus and viruses and colds that we've protected ourselves from with so much isolation and masking and stuff for a couple of years. So it sounds weird, but I think having had COVID-19 over the summer, I'm not fully caught up now on my boosters because I haven't had that new one yet. I don't know if you two have, but it's on my list to do it. Between the natural immunity from having it over the summer and then the double dose and booster, I'm less fearful personally of COVID-19, though I recognize it's still a very serious issue, especially for those who are immunocompromised. But I have to be honest with you, I'm actually scared of the common cold right now because I'm like, I don't fully know what effect that's going to have after a couple of years of being insulated from it. Is that your experience too? Be scared of the flu because I think that's what I had. I, I'm, I got the bivalent booster and I still have yet to had, have had COVID, but I declined the flu shot because I thought it was too many vaccines at once. And then I'm pretty sure what I had the last couple of weeks was the flu. So yeah, I'd be afraid of the flu <laughs> if I were you. I'm going to try to do the double whammy. Last year, it just so, so happened around this time of year, I was in, in my primary care physician's office and the nurse asked if I had the flu shot yet. I said, no. And she said, well, your insurance covers this. And she just got the needle, just jabbed me right there. And so I I feel lucky that I hadn't thought about it at the time. So that's learn from other people's experiences. Well, those who love me and are close to me will tell you that I am a hypochondriac and I'm afraid of everything. And so when you ask the question, like, are you afraid of this or that? The answer is always yes. And it's the worst possible scenario. My wife worked as a chaplain in a hospital and the doctors have a phrase. They say, whenever you're presented with something that you don't know what it is, assume it's horses, not zebras. I always assume it's zebras, the worst possible interpretation of any symptom or any malady is always what runs first to my head. So I'm lucky I have a lot of people around me that talk me down from those ledges. I don't know what that says about zebras, though. That's discriminatory. I (laughs) I always think of zebras as the fancy horses. Let's all stay healthy. Let's agree. Just hoping that some of the good habits we picked up during COVID will help protect us. So, Amen to that. Well, listeners, on our show today, we're going to be picking up three different topics. We're going to be talking about the recent and tragic school shooting in St. Louis. We're going to be talking about recent political comments by Archbishop Chapu. And we're also going to be talking about the rapper Ye, who used to be known as Kanye West, some of his recent anti-Semitic remarks and the consequences that have followed from those. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here with David Dalt and Father Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. It has happened again, another tragic and maddening school shooting, this time at a school in St. Louis, Missouri. 
On Monday of this week, shortly after 9 o'clock in the morning, a 19-year-old gunman entered the Central Visual and Performing Arts High School and opened fire. Two people were killed, a 15-year-old student named Alexandria Bell and a 61-year-old teacher named Jean Kuska, and numerous victims were transported to local hospitals. The shooter, identified as a 2021 graduate of the school, was fatally wounded in a shootout with police. The St. Louis Metropolitan Interim Police Chief Mike Sack said that the gunman entered the school with a rifle in a, quote, aggressive, violent manner, unquote, and had almost a dozen 30-round magazines on him. At the time of this recording, authorities have not publicly announced a potential motive for the shooting. According to an NBC News interview, one student, freshman Jaway Bronner, described the experience of being in the classroom during the one-and-a-half-hour lockdown. According to the report, quote, Bronner texted his mother where he was and what was happening and saying he was okay, and he read a Bible verse, John 3.16, to his class, end quote. Speaking to NBC, Bronner's mother, Jordette Barnes, said, quote, he knows to call on God when he's in trouble, end quote. In recent years, politicians and public figures have been criticized for their prompt messages, often delivered over social media of, quote, thoughts and prayers in the wake of gun violence tragedies such as this. The increased scrutiny is tied to the seeming lip service politicians and public figures give in the moment of tragedy without the action or commitment to policy changes to prevent gun violence of this sort. It is striking that one of the student victims focused on prayer and scripture in this moment of unthinkable fear and anxiety. This is an anecdote that is worth unpacking, especially when we revisit yet another instance of gun violence in American schools. Dan, you've been an outspoken critic of the culture of guns in this country, having written columns and spoken publicly about this phenomenon, especially as it relates to people of faith. What are you thinking in the wake of this latest sad shooting? Well, the first thing I'm thinking, of course, is just the unthinkable suffering that so many families and community members are experiencing. And so, as you said, Heidi, there's just criticism of those, especially politicians and public officials who are quick to, you know, extend, quote, thoughts and prayers, but in a sincere way. And I know our listeners know this about the three of us. We really are carrying in our hearts those who suffer from violence like this. And I would say, I'll speak for myself, carry in my heart a righteous anger about the conditions that make this sort of tragedy possible. And I think that's really where I'd like us to talk a little bit in this episode. But I also want to acknowledge, too, that I know somebody, parents of a teenager who is a student at this school, fortunately is safe and sound, but this is a professional colleague of mine. And it's just, yeah, it's this touches everybody. And I can't help but think of how this has become such a, an epidemic to pandemic gun violence in this country that like those early months and years of the COVID-19 pandemic, slowly but surely, everybody is touched. You know a family member who has become very seriously ill or who has died or a family who has suffered because of that. And I think Pope Francis has talked about racism and violence as a kind of virus in the age of COVID-19. I think that language is useful here. In the past, Heidi, you mentioned columns I've written. I've written for NCR about 
what I've called the addiction that America has to to guns, and which is a kind of illness, right? We recognize addiction as a mental illness and think it is an addiction. I just want to add a couple other points that are that I think are worth noting in, in this particular case. One is that one of the things the police have said is that the school, and it's actually it's a campus that has two independent schools that are together in the same buildings. One of the things the police noted is that the security was incredibly good, <laughs> that the doors were all locked. And actually, in addition to motive, the police aren't sure how this young man got into the building and got into the building with a firearm. I bring that up because, as we saw in Uvalde and other places, just because you have police forces or campus security or you know, locked doors, I believe Senator Ted Cruz of Texas at one point in the wake of the Uvalde murders talked about, well, what we need to do is just have one door as if that weren't a fire hazard, by the way. You know, imagine locking thousands or hundreds of children into a building and having one door. Well, this is case in point, I think, that these sorts of absurdities tend to distract, and deliberately so, people from the real issue, which is if there weren't access, wide access to firearms and ammunition, then this couldn't have happened. It doesn't mean other people can't cause violence and harm. It doesn't mean there can't be other issues that surface, but it's like the same thing too around mental health, where that becomes restigmatized. People who don't want to face the real issue head on about firearms and guns in this country will point to all these other things. And I thought it was interesting that the police department made very clear that there was no security breach, as it were. There was no loophole in the security, as they could tell. I just want to pick up on what you were just saying, Dan, about access. And I don't talk about this much, but when I was a child, I was a witness to gun violence in my home. My mother shot my father, thankfully not fatally. But that event was in large part because we were a household where guns were readily accessible. And in the heat of a moment, someone could grab a firearm from a readily accessible place and use it. And so one aspect of this is we have a culture where firearms are so accessible that it can be a recourse in the kind of heat of the moment situation. But what I want to stress about school shootings is they're not heat of the moment situations. They are premeditated amplified situations, and a lot of the amplification comes from the media, and in particular, places like 4chan and Reddit and other sorts of places where people begin to have amplifying interactions with others, whether they be white supremacists or hate groups or other sorts of things, and they they get narratives and conspiracies in their minds that then drive them to take horrendous action against others. So we're not simply combating firearms or the accessibility of firearms, but we're also combating the kind of rocket fuel that gets poured on vulnerable persons and really helps to amplify them from what might be a fleeting intrusive thought to an actual premeditated plan that then grows over time to become a horrendous event. None of this is accidental. It's all part of an interlocking set of circumstances that we see happen again and again. We understand the pathology, we understand how it is amplified, and we understand that access to firearms and access to this kind of conspiratorial information all can help to amplify and almost guarantee that these events happen. I wish that the bishops would speak out about this as readily and quickly as they speak out about some other life issues that are on the horizon. Yeah, David, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's possible, Dan, that we share the same colleague in common because I heard from this person as well. And it reminds me that so many times the news stories list the dead 
I know this was this happened when the shooting happened in Highland Park here in Illinois over the summer. And certainly the dead are victims, but there are so many other victims of these mass shootings. And I'm not just talking about people who are physically injured, but the trauma of being, especially as a young person, at such a formative time in your development as high school and having to literally run for your life like you're living in a war zone. And for parents who have to then go through the process of trying to find out if their child is or is not a survivor of such a thing, it's just amazing to me how used to this we have gotten. And the St. Louis shooting, it did come up in my newsfeed, but I think for some people, it was not at the top of, the, of their news that they consumed that day, depending on where they are getting their news. What's concerning to me is as we are within, you know, days of a major national election of the midterms for both national and local office, that gun violence while being something that so intimately affects so many people, like you said, Dan, we're all starting to know somebody now who was at least at one of these shootings, if not a murder victim of one of them, that this is not a top priority for politicians. And in fact, I would say that they're spinning issues around violence and crime the other direction, which is let's make everybody so afraid that if they don't vote for this conservative politician, they are going to be, you know, they're, they're going to be a victim of a crime because, oh, it's immigrants or, oh, they're going to take your guns away or all kinds of things that are shown not to be the things that you're most likely to experience violence with. But the actual things that could bring down the level of violence in our culture are not being addressed. That's just crazy to me. Well, and I think, too, just picking up on that last point, Heidi, yeah, I totally agree. I, that is exactly the direction, especially when you look at the sort of meta take of the midterm elections and what the GOP in particular is doing about emphasizing crime, right? And I saw this living in South Africa for six weeks, you know, moving around the country that it's a wonderful, beautiful country with great people, but there's also this kind of specter of crime, this fear that exists, particularly among white South Africans. I think there's a similar sort of echo here where there is not that there isn't instances of crime where people really do encounter violence or theft or these sorts of things. That happens, no doubt. But I think people can get worked up at times, like you're saying, to these, it's a play on anxiety and fear to be manipulated toward elections or to power or to these other things. I, so I bring that up because I think there are other people around the globe who see this and recognize this. But I want to also introduce like the counter side of this, which is there are parts of the world as well that look at us with complete astonishment, right? And in fact, I may have talked about in this podcast, just speaking of South Africa, of being in one of the townships after mass one Sunday and uh, a young woman coming up to me and wanting to ask me about the United States. And I said, oh, I'd be happy to talk. And she was asking about, is it really as violent as they see in here in the news and the reputation? So our country is not this Reagan-esque beacon of light on a hill. We are a country to be feared where people are fearful on our behalf because the perception is that, and, and it's not wrong statistically, that there are hundreds of thousands, million, hundreds of millions of guns all over the place. I just want to talk about two other things too. One, Heidi, I had the same experience the other day. I first learned about the shooting through this professional acquaintance, this professional colleague on their private social media feed. 
And I was waiting to get the alert on my New York Times alert thing on my phone. It never came. And I went and I looked, you know, and it was buried down, we would say, way below the fold. It wasn't even on the digital A1 page. It's really troubling that I think you're right, that it doesn't even in the newsrooms reach that level of attention. I also think the post-trauma thing is really important that there are lots of other victims. And I have to say, I don't know anything, so I don't want to take a side or make a judgment in any particular direction just yet. But at least in the reporting, that NBC News article that, that I know you cited in the top here, the police officer in that, the police chief rather, police chief Sack is his name, who spoke at the press conference said this, and I quote, while on paper we might have nine victims, eight who were transported and one remained, we have hundreds of others, Sack said earlier, and the quote continues, everyone who survived here is going to take home trauma. And I thought that was very insightful and, and true, and I appreciated that being said to your point, which is this is something that will traumatize people for a long time. The last thing I just want to add is to go back to something you said, David, about the guns in the home and to reiterate that to Heidi's point about the way that certain politicians hype up this, sensationalize this fear of the other, when in fact, statistically, year after year after year, the greatest number of gun mortalities and gun, gun violence takes place either because of domestic disputes, which is what you were just describing tragically in your own experience, but also suicide. And both of those things are, as you put them, heat, in the, heat of the moment oftentimes, right? And so if you have a weapon in the house, it, you and your family members are more likely to be victims of that weapon being discharged by you or by somebody else or by accident than you are by some random stranger showing up at your door. Again, those things happen, but they are exceptions that prove the rule. So I want to pick back up this thing that we talked about in the topper for this segment, and that is the role of prayer in all of this, because even prayer has been politicized, as was mentioned in this notion of thoughts and prayers. But I'm a prayerful person. I believe that the Spirit responds to the bidding, particularly of the vulnerable and those who are hurting. And so what can we say as Catholics about the way that we should be praying and using spiritual forces and not just political forces towards this problem? Well, you know, one of the things I think about often is both the New Testament letters, the pastoral epistles, and the Hebrew prophetic call, that prayer needs to be embodied and needs to be actualized. The Hebrew word darbar, meaning word, so we talk about accepting the word, the word of God, is also something that is dynamic, right? It's something that's embodied. And we in the Christian tradition understand that kind of most fully with the incarnation of the word. And then, of course, I'm thinking of James's letter, you can show me your faith and works and this sort of thing. I mean, for me, I think that's where, to your point, David, about the politicizing of thoughts and prayers, where it comes through as hollow or even cynical or even insulting or hypocritical is when politicians say that sort of thing, but then their actions are the opposite. And so I, I guess one of the things I keep thinking about and I'm haunted by in that, in that reflection from the kid who is a survivor of this trauma talking about praying this Bible verse with his classmates in lockdown, and his mother saying that he knows to call on God when he's in trouble, the question is, how does God respond? It's, it's coincidental that I'm teaching a philosophy of religion class right now, and we're on the section on the problem of evil and theodicy in class. And so the students are struggling with these kinds of questions in real time. And the question we might have, the world asks in response to this mother's really insightful reflection is, well, if God is good, like, how does God respond when somebody's in trouble like this? And my answer as a person of faith, as a minister in the church, is to say, well, 
God, to your point, David, the spirit is alive in us and we're called to do something about it. And I think we have a lot of work to do. I don't have any patience, frankly, for those who, to, to paraphrase again the letter of James, for, for people who claim to be people of faith and belief and thoughts and prayers, but then continue to support a culture and conditions that allow for this sort of proliferation of guns that leads to gun violence. And I would just add that as a mom, I'm sure like that mother, I would be proud if one of my children knew to rely on his or her faith in a time of terror and, and difficulty like that. But I don't think the God of love wants our children to be cowering in school corners, uh, reaching out to God. And like you said, Dan, the God of love wants us to do something about that because we can. So sadly, I know that we will again and again be returning to this topic of conversation, but we will continue to bring up the points that we really believe that as Christians, we have to do something about this. So thanks for listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalton. I'm here with Father Dan Haran and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Last weekend, Archbishop Charles Chaput, the former Archbishop of Philadelphia, spoke at an event in Arlington, Virginia, on the topic of the Eucharist. About halfway through his talk, Chaput made a critique about how Catholics may have assimilated too much into the American culture, singling out President Joe Biden and his political support for legal abortion. Quote, when you freely break communion with the Church of Jesus Christ and her teachings, you can't pretend to be in communion when it's convenient. That's a form of lying, unquote, the archbishop said, going on to say, quote, Mr. Biden is not in communion with the Catholic faith, and any priest who now provides communion to the president participates in his hypocrisy, unquote. Archbishop Chaput's words went viral on social media, once again bringing up an issue that was front and center during the 2020 presidential election and after Biden's victory. You may recall that several conservative bishops raised concerns about Biden's political views on abortion during the campaign and called for him to be banned from reception of communion. Shortly after Biden's inauguration, the U.S. Bishops' Conference took up the issue of whether to adopt a policy to ban politicians who support legal abortion from communion. After a year of controversy and debate, the Bishops' Conference passed a tepid document that continued the practice of leaving the matter to each politician's local bishop. Neither Cardinal Wilton Gregory of Washington, D.C., nor Bishop William Koenig of Wilmington, Delaware, has made any formal statement about denying President Biden communion. Gregory, in fact, has said the opposite, saying he does not want to politicize the sacrament. In San Francisco, however, Archbishop Salvatore Cordelione has said that if House Speaker Nancy Pelosi does not drop her public support for legal abortion, she should stop receiving communion. Heidi... Archbishop Chaput's comments seem to indicate that denying communion is still a tactic some U.S. church leaders would like to employ. What are your thoughts? Well, I guess <laughs> my thoughts are, here we go again, or maybe it's here we go still, because I think for some U.S. church leaders, this has never been off the table. This idea that abortion specifically is an issue that's so 
puts a politician outside of church teaching on the matter, that the only way to respond to that, uh, they believe, is to deny reception of the sacrament somehow as a punishment or sort of a corrective to get the person to change or otherwise to at least just draw them outside the circle and say, you can't be part of the Catholic communion. And the problem with this is that this whole fight about this for a year was such big news, so much controversy, so much back and forth. And yet even a majority of the bishops eventually decided to just drop it, to, you know, to, to adopt a, a document on communion that did not include something strong about denying communion to politicians, instead leaving it to the local bishop. And we have, after that, we have the Pope himself weighing in on the matter, reportedly saying when Biden was in Rome that he told Biden he's a good Catholic and should continue to go to communion. The Holy Father has also come out very specifically and said that he has never denied communion to anyone. So both by leading by example and by what he reportedly told the president, it seems the matter is decided. But for these certain leaders who their fame is in stirring up these culture war issues, I think they just can't leave it alone. Well, yeah, it's catnip for a certain kind of politician and ideological person in and outside the church, as it were. I mean, I, there are a couple of things that come to mind for me. The first is the staggering degree of Chaput's theological ignorance. I don't say that lightly. I say this as a professional theologian and a Roman Catholic priest and a Franciscan friar. You know, I, I am somebody who does theology professionally for a living, and it's just, it's striking. One example is something that came up in my colleague, NCR columnist Michael Sean Winter's column today, today Wednesday, when he was writing about this, and it had a very clever headline, a play on Pope Francis's, you know, who am I to judge? You know, Chapu in, in Michael Sean's telling is basically presenting himself as somebody who believes, who am I not to judge? which is striking in a pastoral way. But one of the things that, that Michael Sean points out, which is as it's completely correct, theologically correct, is that you can't break communion with an idea or with a doctrine or a belief. You break communion with people. And so the question really is, as it is for people like Vigano and these others, Burke and so forth, who, if not explicitly identifying their refusal to be in communion in the Lefebvreite sort of way with the Bishop of Rome are certainly acting in practice like they are not in communion with the Bishop of Rome. That is the standard of being in communion with the Catholic Church. And it's also interesting, we use this term archbishop, but he's a retired archbishop. He's the ordinary of nobody right now. He has no, absolutely no pastoral or canonical authority. He's a retired bishop. And so I think that's important to remember, too. He is not in a position, not even the Diocese of Philadelphia, which he used to be the bishop of. He is in a position to declare nobody outside of communion with any local church or the church universal. So that just needs to be stated. That's, that is a canonical and a theological fact. The other thing, too, I find curious is, again, following this notion of theological ignorance— the opening line here in the topper about how, you know, Chapu is claiming that there's been too much, quote, assimilation with American culture. I mean, I wrote my column last week about the irony of the, a lot of bishops, including Chapu's interpretation of religious liberty. And, and just a, a historical and theological reminder, that arose as a controversy out of the quote-unquote American experiment. And it was an American Jesuit theologian who was at first silenced in the first half of the 20th century, John Courtney Murray, who made the theological argument, laid the framework, as it were, for the church's adoption and change of its teaching on religious liberty as an inherent human right. And so 
yeah, the church has actually assimilated too much with American culture if you believe in religious liberty. That's where it came from. So I don't know. Does he have a problem? Is he rejecting religious liberty? Because if so, by his own definition, I guess he's not in communion with that teaching. So I want to pick up on this in exactly the place where you're landing, Dan. What we're seeing here is a a public figure or a bishop acting as a public figure, making a public statement about a politician and declaring that this politician is going to be punished in some way for a position that the politician is taking. Now, I know that we've been around and around this, but I was really struck by the point that you made that Archbishop Chaput is currently the bishop of nothing. And I think that's an important thing for listeners to understand. When a bishop speaks on Twitter, when a bishop is speaking about something that is happening outside of that that bishop's diocese, when the when a bishop is talking about something as a kind of global concern, that bishop is really speaking beyond a certain level of authority. The bishops have control within their particular dioceses. They don't speak with universal voice. But oftentimes, Catholics misapprehend, and they think that a bishop is speaking with universal voice, particularly if that bishop is saying something that they like, or even worse, they go shopping for a bishop that says something that they wish the whole church would say. Yeah, and just on that note, I'll add briefly that the only bishop in the world who has universal teaching authority, what we call ordinary magisterium in a universal sense, is the Bishop of Rome. And so every other bishop has teaching authority, has a certain responsibilities, juridical and otherwise, in their church, as you were saying, David, in the diocese, but especially a retired bishop does not exercise that authority. Yeah. And I mean, I think um, Michael Sean Winters hit it on the head, which is this uh, propensity to or this need to constantly be judging and making decisions, feeling the need to always be executing some sort of punishment or some sort of making an example of people. Again, that's between Joe Biden and his God and Joe Biden and his pastor, whether it's at his parish or his own bishop. I would say, too, that once again, we're just facing this issue where abortion is the only issue that is being singled out for this kind of treatment in terms of do we deny someone the sacraments. And I get that it's a serious issue. I get that pushing for the legalization of abortion is against uh, church teaching. But there are a lot of ways that other politicians are also discarding very important parts of our teaching who it's never even crossed the mind that they would be in in a similar situation. Now, I personally don't think that's the way to bring into line with church teaching anybody, whether it's on abortion or another issue. But I don't know that it's clearly not a settled matter. It keeps coming up. And in a few short weeks, in the middle of November, the U.S. Bishops Conference will be getting together again for their annual meeting, as they do every November in Baltimore. And in previous years, There was a lot of news around this, and consequently, there was a lot of secular media who were interested in what might be going on at that meeting. NCR reporters and editors will be at that meeting, and there are some things on the agenda specifically about the internal matters at the conference that I think are going to be consequential. It's possible, I'm not 100% sure at the version of the agenda that I'm seeing, that this issue will come up again that they will be discussing faithful citizenship, their document about how Catholics should engage in political life. And really, it hasn't. that document hasn't been updated in years. 
it precedes the Trump years, for example. And we really need better guidance on how Catholics can participate as politicians, as voters, as citizens. And they can be Catholic, but we are members of a democracy where not everybody is Catholic. And, and it's just sad that we're not getting that direction from our bishops or from our leaders. I want to say yes and to that, and I want to take that in a second direction because I think that it is important for the bishops to give guidance about how we participate in political life. But I also want to point out that in the wake of very apparent white nationalism, the erosion of democracy, and blatant racism at the highest levels of our political discourse, the response of the bishops was, we need to spend several million dollars re-educating people about the Eucharist. And if that is where we think that the money needs to go, and if we think that the Eucharist is really the thing that is going to solve all of these other political problems, having a, a bishop stand in the pulpit and use the Eucharist as a weapon is going to say to those young people and those who are on the fringes or on the outside of the church, that it's the same it's the same drill it ever was that the eucharist is once again going to be used as a cudgel to beat people over the head it's not going to be something that's actually going to bring the grace of jesus christ or is going to con- is going to communicate the fact that we are a reconciling church and a church that is synodal that we are called to talk with one another listen to one another and to walk together Yeah. I mean, I'm thinking of two things on that point about faithful citizenship and the guidance, as you're saying, David, that bishops ought to be providing for people in their dioceses, in their local churches. That is part of their responsibility as holders of that office, right? And I think, again, we need to be very clear about that. Even though there's a retired bishop of Rome named Benedict XVI, he is not the Pope. And there's a retired bishop of Philadelphia. His name is Charles Chaput, and he is not the Archbishop of Philadelphia. They're, not, they're no longer holding that office, but those who do hold those offices have responsibilities to the people in those churches, as you say. And one of the things that faithful citizenship has, for all of its ups and downs and various iterations over the years, has always reaffirmed, because it is the core of church teaching on the subject, is that at the end of the day, each Catholic Christian has recourse to their conscience when it comes to these matters of discernment. And so I think that gets buried as well. When there's so much focus on this litmus test sort of theology or theological ethics from armchair theologians, what we see playing out in this case. The other thing I want to raise, too, is, you know, to zoom us back out. I mean, we are so solipsistic. We are so America first. And some of these bishops, including the retired bishop of Philadelphia, Archbishop Chapu, is so focused on this kind of American exceptionalism that they miss the ways in which this the church in this country is exceptional, and it's not in a good way. It's that if you look at other countries, comparable countries to us, you look at the way that Catholic bishops engage with political figures and politicians and campaigns, this sort of culture warrior sort of stuff, it's beginning to be exported a little bit, just like Trumpism was being exported to places like Brazil, and we see this playing in other places increased in, in Turkey and in France and now in Italy as well. This is a relatively new phenomenon. If you look over the last 10 years or so, that we are the only ones who are being subjected as people of faith to this sort of spiritual and pastoral malpractice and abuse. And I think this is a challenge that the global church has before it. We are exporting not a good practice of our faith, not a good model of pastoral leadership, but something that's really quite toxic and distracting. And so I think this is important when you look at the sort of global impact of 
the United States on politics, on finance, on economics, all these sorts of things. But also when it comes to us as Catholics, when it comes to the churches, what's being exported here, I think it's really terrible. The, con- the converse is also important. We can learn from a lot of other bishops. I would highlight examples like, I, I know there's some conversation that continues among the U.S. bishops and the U.S. Bishops Conference around LGBTQ issues. I think I would encourage them to sit and read again and pray over what the bishops of New Zealand recently put out, a very different tone and style around LGBTQ inclusion and questions of transgender identity that would, would seem heretical, I think, according to Chaput's kind of standards of interpretation and worldview. All of this is to say is that it's not just about us, that this affects everybody. And, and it's very sad. It makes the United States look bad. It makes the church and the states look bad, too. Yeah, those are strong words, Dan, to say so toxic and malpractice. The sad part is that there is a certain kind of U.S. Catholic, not just the retired Archbishop of Philadelphia, who are really into this. They want black and white teaching. They want punishment for people who are whose consciences tell them that perhaps in their political life, if not in their professional life, that they need to consider that that not everyone believes as we do as Catholics. And I think that if it were just a few rogue leaders or something, that would be one thing. But there's just this whole movement. And as you said, David, for the remainder of people, especially younger people, this is not attractive. To them. They are not looking for a hierarchical, punitive <laughs> organization to get involved in that's a judgmental and these sorts of things. These are just the exact opposite of what people are looking for. So instead, sadly, what we could be offering, the message of Jesus, political involvement that really makes our country a better place and spiritual sustenance is not being taken advantage of because we're just seeing it as an arm of the Republican Party or of, as you said, David, white nationalism. Well, listeners, if you know of a young person or someone on the edge or the fringes of the church who is looking for a way to reconnect, we certainly encourage you to have them listen to our podcast. And I'm unfortunately sure that we're going to be talking about these kinds of issues again in future episodes. But for right now, we need to turn to another topic. But thank you for listening. You're with us on The Francis Effect, and we'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Horan, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and David Dahl. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. It has been a tumultuous few weeks for Ye, the rapper and media sensation formerly known as Kanye West. In early October, Ye attended a Paris Fashion Week event wearing a t-shirt with the message, quote, White Lives Matter. A few days later, Ye appeared on Tucker Carlson's Fox News show. During the interview, some of which was not aired, Ye made a series of statements that the Jewish Anti-Defamation League later characterized as, quote, offensive and conspiratorial claims about Jewish people and Jewish identity, unquote. Around the same time as his appearance with Carlson, Ye made posts on Instagram and Twitter that contained what many considered to be anti-Jewish hate speech as well as references to conspiracies often repeated by neo-Nazis and the alt-right. Throughout his career, Ye has courted controversy, and the rapper has also been open about his experiences with mental illness through the years. But the messages these past few weeks, 
seem to be of a different character from earlier media provocations, and they have had more direct consequences. Several media platforms have limited or suspended Ye's accounts in the wake of these posts. There is evidence that radio stations as well have begun to seriously cut back on airplay of Ye's music. Most notably, several major brands have ceased their association with Ye, and as of this recording, The Gap, The Creative Artist Agency, and Adidas are among those who have cut ties with the rapper. But we must also note that Ye's words have had an energizing effect on hate groups. Several white supremacist organizations and others that engage in active anti-Semitism have praised Ye for amplifying and drawing increased media attention to their hate speech and granting it an air of legitimacy. David, I know you've been watching Ye's career for quite a while. What are you taking away from the events of these past few weeks? Well, let me say, among other things, that I'm a fan and that I really am very impressed by the creative side of what Kanye West slash Ye has been doing through the years. I realize that he's a controversial figure, but also from both his recorded music, but also his live events. He has a way of framing spectacle in stage shows, and he knows how to bring collaborators along with his vision to really make things amazing for the fans. And so I want to acknowledge that side that is here. But also, Ye, Kanye, has had a history of making provocative and increasingly problematic statements. And I mean, it's not just the past couple of weeks, but we can also look at his embrace of Donald Trump. We can look at the ways in which he has engaged in misogynistic discourse through the years as well. And so, I mean, there's always been an undercurrent of problem to the promise that's going on here. So I admit I have complex feelings about this. And even with all the other things that we are saying, the other piece that I want to make sure is in the mix here is that Kanye is a person who, as myself, a person with mental health issues, he's a person who's been very upfront about his mental health issues. So that's a factor here too. It doesn't explain or excuse the statements that he's made. It doesn't explain or excuse some of the positions that he's taken, but it is another complexifying factor in considering what all this means. But the thing that's the most concerning to me is the amplification and the energizing of white power groups in the wake of Kanye's statements and stances. They really have taken this as a cue, much in the same way that these same organizations like the Proud Boys and others took a lot of Donald Trump's statements as cues to really come out of the woodwork and be much more present and visible and violent. And in fact, there's some talk that Kanye West may or yay now, may take over the social media platform Parlor, which has been a gathering place and a rallying point for these white supremacist groups. So there's a lot here for us to dig into and think about. Well, all I can say is that the history of anti-Semitism in our country, in our world, in our church even, is one of the biggest stains on human existence. And to see it proudly boasted by a prominent person who has such a large audience and has many fans. I have to admit, I'm not a big fan of his music. I could not get past the misogyny of many of the lyrics. But like the quote that he apparently said, like, I could say anti-Semitic things and Adidas won't drop me, referring to the tennis shoe company. It reminded me so much of Donald Trump saying I could shoot somebody in the middle of whatever street in New York. And I would still get elected or whatever. And that's where we've come is that, you know, I think there have been anti-Semitic people 
probably even famous ones, and there have been uh, white supremacists. But the fact that it is now acceptable to say these things publicly and by people who are leaders in some sort of industry or in politics, we should be very worried about this. And I mentioned in our last episode when we were talking about what we were watching, how I had watched the documentary on the Holocaust. And it really does document the anti-Semitism in the United States. So not just Nazi anti-Semitism in Germany. Coincidentally, I had learned that the Adidas shoe company was founded by someone who was a Nazi. And so the slowness with which they, you know, back, obviously back during the war, the time they took before canceling the deal with the billion dollar, I guess, deal with Ye was not that impressive. I have mixed feelings about corporations being our moral guides in these kinds of things. But in this day and age, you just can't have be associated with someone who is out there being blatantly anti-Semitic. So I'm not an Adidas shoe fanatic or anything, but I'm glad that these companies did take a stand when it's this blatant. Well, and that's, isn't that the thing, isn't it? This blatant, you know, it's so obvious. I mean, David, you talked about some of these other kind of stunts and I call them stunts because I'm not sure. It's it's hard to tell whether these are reflections of a sincere worldview that he holds, which is disturbing in its own right, or whether these are PR stunts or schemes to get this attention in a way that I think some of the parallel examples that we've discussed already around somebody like Donald Trump, who is really pushing boundaries and, and pushing the discursive level to sadly new lows, we might say. Some people said, well, this is to garner earned media time, advertising time. And, and here we are talking, one third of our podcast this episode is talking about this. And so, I mean, I don't know. I'm not in a position. I'm, I'm not a big fan, I'm, nor am I somebody who condemns his art. I don't really know. I know some of his songs, obviously, but I'm not kind of a diehard. And so I don't know him well enough. I certainly don't know him personally to adjudicate whether these things are sincere views or a PR scheme. I do think that some of the analysis that's come out in subsequent weeks, even before the latest anti-Semitic sort of diatribing around particularly that fashion show display of the t-shirt saying White Lives Matter, I know there are a number of black journalists and scholars who who made this point that this is not a new thing. You know, if this is a sincere view of his that he holds us to be true, which is how he was presenting his support for Donald Trump and Trump's views, well then this is as these scholars point out and these journalists point out, this is another iteration of internalized racism and this is a problem. This is not to be emulated and I think there's a danger Going back to, David, your point about his mental health concerns, I'm reminded of his ex, now ex-wife, but then wife, Kim Kardashian, who it seemed in a very sincere and loving and caring way was pleading back, and I think this was in, what, 2016 or something, or 2020, maybe 2019, 2020, when Ye, then Kanye, was was seeking to run for office or something like this, running for president, that she, was, she, as somebody who knew him very well, was highlighting that he should not be encouraged in this way, that he's not well, and that this is a form of acting out that is self-destructive, ultimately. Again, I'm not individually in a position to make that kind of judgment or armchair analysis, but I do think that, you know, I think of that cliched Spider-Man quote, you know, with great power comes great responsibility and with great influence and great kind of role model status that he holds, especially among a lot of young people, 
this is, it's very dangerous. It's a dangerous combination. So obviously, to your point, Heidi, it's so blatant. The anti-Semitism needs to be condemned. I think the white supremacy that he's been toying with, at least, if not in embracing the white lives matter, the Trump sort of agenda, these things also need to be condemned. It also raises, we'll see, as history will have to grapple with, who knows He's alive. He's continuing to produce his material. Maybe things will change. There might be a redemptive story. I don't know. But I mean, this is the ongoing question, isn't it, about certain artists and people even use the G word. Is he a genius in his field? We might look at another recording artist like who's deceased now, Michael Jackson, and realize the very complex history this person has and their extraordinary music. Is it okay to listen to Michael Jackson music? Is it okay? You know, these are the questions that follow, and I don't have a good answer, particularly in this case, especially because I don't have as much of a dog in the fight, as it were. But I do think that we just need to absolutely condemn those two points for which he's drawing a lot of attention right now. Well, and I also want to bring another facet into this, and that is a lot of the things that Ye has been saying in the last few weeks, these are positions that certain Catholics also have held and hold today. I'm thinking in particular of certain factions of the Catholic faith that have a lot of financial backing, people like Robertson Genis and Rick Delano and others who will go and produce well-funded media properties. These were two of the producers of a documentary called The Principle, which is a young earth creationist documentary. But in the midst of that, they filter in anti-Semitic aspects as well. And Robertson Genis, for example, has been on record saying that believing what Nostra Aetate says, a Vatican document accepting the validity of the covenant with the Jews, is a damnable heresy. Like they, they will try and use and twist Catholic teaching to create enmity towards our Jewish brothers and sisters or to other minorities. And so these are things that need to be called out in our own house as well. And this is the thing that when someone like Ye begins to uh, to say these things publicly, it becomes an amplification point. And this is, again, providing cover for people like Delanos and Genis and others on the Catholic side to come and say, yeah, and by the way, Nostra Tete is wrong, and we should get rid of it, and we should reinterpret Vatican II such that we no longer are confused that democracy is a possibility and things like that. Like the, These are very dangerous things that some of our fellow Catholics are saying that we also need to be calling out, and this gives us an opportunity to name those problems as well. So, David, you're going to have to help me here, but because I have a little information is dangerous. As I said, I'm not a big fan of his music, but didn't he do some music recently that had religious undertones? Does he purport to be a Christian? Yes, and in fact, he's just recently opened a religious private school as well, Donda's Academy. And so, yes, he definitely comes from a kind of—it's hard to classify. I would say it's more kind of evangelical-slash-fundamentalist in the way that he thinks about his religious faith, but this is the difficulty, right? His kind of Christianity fit very well with a certain type of rebranded Christianity that a lot of Trump followers are now clinging to as well. So it's— it's, I mean, is he a Christian? There's a really interesting conversation to be had there, because if you hold to, for example, Matthew 25 or the tenets of the Sermon on the Mount, maybe it wouldn't look so much. But is he culturally Christian? From an American standpoint, absolutely. He fits absolutely into the kind of Christianity that has become really prevalent and really popular among the American right over the last 15 or 20 years. Hmm. And there's this tendency, I know, among some church people, when we see somebody in pop culture who is 
purporting to have something of a Christian message to get excited. There's somebody out in the cool kids part of the cafeteria who's talking about Jesus. But I think this is a good warning that we have to be discerning and discriminating that just because they have an album with Jesus's name in the title or something or a song, that that doesn't mean that there's, like you said, that this is a Matthew 25 kind of Christian. Well, it it reminds me of George Harrison's song from years ago, My Sweet Lord, which is about Krishna, not about Jesus. But a lot of people would say, but it says Lord in the title. But again, we remember that scripture that says just because someone is saying Lord, Lord, it doesn't mean that they're actually following Jesus in that way. So I guess... I just find myself at this impasse, right? As, as David, you, you mentioned and we've discussed already, here's somebody who has struggled with mental illness on a very large stage, which is admirable in, in, in one sense. I don't also want to restigmatize folks with mental illness and say that everybody who is struggling with some form of mental illness is going to fall prey to anti-Semitism or white supremacy or something like this. And nor do I want to equate those views with mental illness, right? It's really complex in this way. So I, I keep coming back to how do we orient ourselves around this phenomenon right now? How do we make sense of this? And for me, the two categories that keep coming to mind is either a, a an intentional sort of PR stunt or a sincere sort of reflection. And maybe there those that's a binary that's not helpful. Maybe there's another way to think about this. But I don't know. I think I just fall back to what you were saying, both of you were saying in terms of the Christian reception, which is this is not representative. Certainly the anti-Semitism, the white supremacy, these are things that are not representative and not justifiably supported by authentic Christian teaching and views. When you said, David, like a non-Matthew 25 Christian, and so there's no such thing as a Christian that doesn't fall into that category, right? So, you know, but unlike the former Archbishop of Philadelphia, I'm not interested in declaring who is and isn't a Christian. So we'll leave it at that from my perspective. And I think we'll keep an eye on this, but I think it's important as all three of us have highlighted that this needs to be condemned and we applaud those who, who make those difficult public statements, even if it is an expensive one, like we see with some of these corporations, as mixed as that decision is itself. So I think on the front of personal health and well-being and for maybe personal conversion and a better sense of inclusion and the effects of the consequences of some of these statements, we can continue to pray for our brother in this world, you know, yay. And in a special way, continue to work for justice and peace and inclusion that is reflective of authentic Christianity and the gospel, which is not about discrimination, not about anti-Semitism, not about white supremacy. Let's think about those things when we vote, too, because by the time we come back next time, we will be past the uh, midterm election. So my guess is we'll be talking about that. Well, listeners, thank you for being with us on this episode, and we are happy to be with you. Please know that we are praying for you, and we appreciate it when you are praying for us. And please pray for each other and for these these situations and issues that we've been talking about here. We will be back in two weeks. Father Dan, Heidi, thanks for being with me today. You've been listening to The Francis Effect. Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. 
We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.